We turn this morning to the book of Job, chapter 19. And here we find one of the oldest references to a bodily resurrection in Scripture. Job chapter 19. I'm going to begin reading at verse 23 and read through verse 29 of Job 19. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that with an iron stylus and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will take His stand on the earth. And even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God whom I myself shall behold, and with whom my eyes will see, and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, how shall we persecute him, and what pretext for a case against him can we find? Then be afraid of the sword for yourselves, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, so that you may know there is judgment. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this glorious day. And just the songs that we've sung today, Lord Jesus, have ministered to our hearts, our souls. How good to know, Lord Jesus, that You are a risen Savior. And I pray now that as we open Your Word, that You would teach us, that You would guide us into Your truth. Lord, we believe that Your Word is everlasting truth. And we stand upon the truth today that Jesus Christ is risen and living, and someday soon will come again. We pray in His name. Amen. When we first meet Job in chapter 1 of this book, he appears to have the most hopeful future that one could ever imagine. He is blessed with ten children, he is a man of great wealth, and he is a godly man as well. The Bible describes him as blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. But oh, how things can change so quickly. In just a matter of days, he loses his wealth he loses his children. He loses his health. His wife tells him to curse God and die. And his friends blame him for all his troubles. If anyone had a right to ask the question, why? I can't think of anybody else but Job. Just think of what he went through. Glenn Chambers was a young Christian from New York who had a lifelong dream of going to Ecuador, serving there as a missionary. At, the last, at last, the opportunity came, and he was at the airport ready to go, and he decided that he would write a note to his mother before he boarded the plane. And all he could find was a scrap of paper. It was actually taken from a magazine, and in very bold letters was the, the, the word Y on it. And so then he wrote where he could, and he got an envelope and put a stamp on it and, and sent it to his mother. 
As the plane took off for Ecuador, in its journey, it crashed into a mountain in Colombia, and Glenn Chambers died in that crash. And so his mother opens this letter a few days later, and in very bold letters she sees that word, why? And she couldn't help but ask the question, why did my son have to die? Here he was, a godly man, a man on his way to, to serve the Lord as a missionary in Ecuador, and his life was taken from him just like that. How quickly things could change. As we look at Job chapter 19, we see quite a contrast between the beginning of the chapter and the end of the chapter. In the beginning of the chapter, Job is in despair because life really has not been fair, if we look at it from that perspective. And the question as to why all this has happened has not been answered. But you come to the end of the chapter and it all changes. Because Job, at the end of the chapter, the verses that we just read, he has an eternal perspective. And he knows that one day, after his flesh has been destroyed, he will stand in the presence of God and he will see his Redeemer, the one that he knows is alive. I thought about preaching just on the last verses of the chapter because that's really the whole focus of Easter, but you can't really appreciate the end of the chapter until you look at the beginning because it really sets the stage for what Job is talking about in the last verses. So in the first section of the chapter, we have the despair of hope removed. And notice how Job gives us a very interesting picture of what the trials of life had done to him. Trials had taken his hope away just like an uprooted tree. Look at the picture he gives in verse 10. He says, he breaks me down on every side and I am gone. And he has uprooted my hope like a tree. You got that picture in your mind? Can you just picture a, a, a beautiful tree with green leaves and, and producing fruit? That was the picture of Job's life. Firmly rooted in God, producing fruit, and then all of a sudden, in just a short time, it's like that tree was just ripped out by the roots. That's the picture Job gives of his hope being removed. He has uprooted my hope like a tree. And there are three reasons why Job's hope was uprooted like a tree. First of all, his friends, his so-called friends, were accusing him. When Job's friends came to seek him after they heard of his troubles, they didn't say a word for an entire week. You find that in chapter 2. They came from their different places and they saw Job. They could not even recognize him. He had boils all over him. Uh, scratching his boils with a, you know, a piece of potsherd. And they sat with him for a week and did not say a word because his pain was so great. And I would suggest to you that during that time they ministered to him. <laughs> they were with him. What do you say to a guy like that? Do you have a, do you have a magical answer? 
Can you come to a man like that and you just say, you know, well, Romans 8.28 says God causes all things to work together for good. Is that what you do? They didn't say a word. And they ministered to him. But when they opened their mouths, they ceased to be of help to Job because their words over and over were extremely hurtful. Listen to how Job describes it. In verse 1, then Job responded, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? These ten times you have insulted me, you are not ashamed to wrong me. So that's how he took their so-called counsel. You are tormenting me. You are crushing me with your words. Probably a good reminder to us of the power of words, huh? Sometimes we can crush people, and that's what Job's friends did. He goes on to say in this chapter that not only did his friends accuse him, but he figured that God was was against him. Notice verse 6. He says, Know then that God has wronged me and has closed his net around me. Behold, I cry violence, but I get no answer. I shout for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and He has put darkness on my paths. He has stripped my honor from me and removed the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I'm gone. He has uprooted my hope like a tree. He has also kindled His anger against me and considered me His enemy. His troops come together and build up their way against me and they camp around my tent. Do you get all the pictures that he gives of what he sees as God against him? Like an animal caught in a trap? Like one pleading for justice in court and no one answers? He's behind this wall and he can't get over it. He's like a king that's been dethroned. And he's being attacked by God's army. So instead of assuming that God was for him, Job assumes that God is against him. And if God is against you, what hope do you have? Ever felt like God was against you? So his friends accused him. He said God was against him and his family. You'd think his family would stand with him, but his family forsook him. They wanted nothing to do with him. Look at verse 13. He has removed my brothers far from me, and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed. My intimate friends have forgotten me. Those who live in my house and my maids consider me a stranger. I'm a foreigner in their sight. I call to my servant, but he does not answer. I have to implore him with my mouth. Verse 17, my breath is offensive to my wife. That could probably describe more than just Job. And I am loathsome to my own brothers. Even young children despise me. I rise up and they speak against me. All my associates abhor me and those I love have turned against me. My bone clings to my skin and my flesh, and I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Family, relatives, friends, servants, acquaintances, they wanted nothing to do with Job. 
So that really sets the stage for these verses because that's the condition in which Job finds himself. Hope was uprooted like a tree. Friends accuse him. God is against him. Family forsook him. And he's crying out for for something. Verse 21, he says, Pity me. Pity me, oh, you my friends. For the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does? Are you not satisfied with my flesh? Isn't this bad enough? That I go through all of this, and then you just keep on heaping on to me, oh, Job, you've sinned. You're being punished by God. If there was ever a man whose situation looked hopeless, it was Job. If you look then at verse 23 and 24, you will notice how Job wants his words to be preserved. He's pretty sure that he's going to die. And he knows that when he dies, his friends will malign his reputation forever. One author says they will put on his gravestone these words. Here lies Job, who was a sinner with secret sins. He refused to confess. He has paid the penalty for his sins at last. And the justice of God has been vindicated by his death. May he not rest in peace. (laughs) That is not too far from the truth, if it is at all. Because that's how they viewed Job. How would you like that on your tombstone? This person is suffering for his sins. He got what he deserves. May he not rest in peace. So that's why Job says in verse 23, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. That with an iron stylus and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. How ironic. (laughs) His words are preserved, aren't they? And because they are part of the Word of God, they are preserved forever. Oh, that these words would be preserved and Job's desire is is fulfilled because here they are. Here's the story. In the book of Job, he describes it all. And even if Job wouldn't have been vindicated in this life, He expresses the conviction that he will be vindicated in the life to come. And that's what we see in this second section then. We see the joy of hope restored. The joy of hope restored. And what is that hope? In verse 25 he says, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will take his stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I will see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. There are three things that Job knows about the life to come. The first thing he says is, I know that I have a living Redeemer. Verse 25, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. Prior to this, Job has been longing for a Redeemer. 
He has been longing for someone who could represent him before God. Go to chapter 9, starting at verse 29. He says, I am accounted wicked. Why then should I toil in vain? If I should wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you would plunge me into the pit, and my own clothes would abhor me. Why, for he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, answer God, that we may go to court together. Then he says, there is no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. Let him remove his rod from me, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear, but I am not like that in myself. See what he's saying? There's got to be someone between me and God. Someone that would lay his hand on me and his hand on God. That sounds like a mediator, doesn't it? Who's he talking about? That's Jesus, isn't it? Go to chapter 16. Of Job, verse 18, he says, O earth, do not cover my blood, and let there be no resting place for my cry. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and my advocate is on high. My friends are my scoffer. My eye weeps to God. Oh, that a man might plead with God as a man with his neighbor. See that word advocate? Who's he talking about? Who's he describing? (laughs) Who would fulfill that? Being the one in between that would lay his hand on God and on Job. That advocate. We know, don't we? That advocate, of course, is Jesus. He's the Redeemer. He said, I know that my Redeemer lives. That word Redeemer is a very interesting word. It is used to describe what many call the kinsman Redeemer or the near relative of one in need. If you look at the Old Testament see what that kinsman redeemer was able to do, you'll find out several things. According to Deuteronomy chapter 19, this kinsman redeemer could avenge his brother's blood. According to Leviticus 25, the kinsman redeemer could reclaim and restore his brother's property and set his brother free from slavery. According to Proverbs 23, 10 and 11, the kinsman redeemer could also go to court on behalf of a wronged relative. And if you're familiar with the book of Ruth, you probably remember a man by the name of Boaz. Remember Boaz? Boaz was the kinsman redeemer. He was the one that was willing to to rescue Ruth and to give her new life in a new land. And so that word is very rich in the Old Testament, and and it pictures Jesus in such a wonderful way. Warren Wiersbe says, of course, this kinsman redeemer is Jesus. 
He took upon Himself a human nature so that He might reveal God to us, experience all that we experience, die for our sins, and then return to heaven to represent us before the Father. There's our mediator. And as Job cries out in his need, oh, that there were someone. (laughs) Then he comes to chapter 5 and it is clear to him that there is someone. I know that my Redeemer lives. He goes on to say that my living Redeemer then will take the stand for me. Verse 25, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last He will take His stand on the earth. That word translated stand means simply more, means more than the fact that Jesus would come to earth. The word is a judicial term. It refers to a witness standing in court to give a testimony. Isn't that exactly what Jesus is? He is our witness. He is the one who stands in the court of heaven to give testimony concerning us. What does he say? He doesn't say, Father, they're innocent. He doesn't say, Father, they should not be judged. He says, Father, I died for them. I'm their advocate. I'm their redeemer. I'm their mediator. The Apostle John says, My little children, I write unto you that you sin not. 1 John, 1, 1 John 2, 1. But if anyone sins, we have what? An advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. And He is the propitiation. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not just for our sins, John says, but for the sins of the the whole world. We have a living Redeemer. We have one who will take His stand for us because He shed His blood for us. And then thirdly, Job says that I will see my Redeemer face to face. Verse 26, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I will see God. That talks resurrection, right? Whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes will see and not another. And then he says, my heart faints within me. It's obvious Job believed in a bodily resurrection. Because he says, after my skin is destroyed, from my flesh I will see God. So even if Job were to die without being vindicated by his friends, or before his friends, he certainly will be vindicated before God. And as he thinks of this, it gives him such joy... He said, my heart faints within me when I think of this. And again, put yourself in Job's shoes, all that he has gone through. He thinks he's going to die. Well, he knows he's going to die eventually. But he would stand there in the presence of the Redeemer. The one who lives, the one who takes his stand for Job, the one who will give him a new body one day. So he moves from despair when his hope is removed to joy when his hope 
is restored. And it is a very personal thing for him. Did you notice that? As for me. That's personal, right? As for me. I know that my Redeemer lives. As for me. This is my testimony, Job is telling us. As for me. I know that my Redeemer lives. And so I want to ask you today, is that your testimony? Can you say that today? As for me. I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that Jesus Christ is my Savior. I know that He is the one who paid the price for me. And I call Him today my Redeemer. That's a personal thing. And that's why we speak of having a personal relationship with Jesus. Knowing Him as your Savior and Lord. If you can't say that, then Job would give you a very clear warning at the end of this chapter. In verse 28, he says, If you say, how shall we persecute him? And what pretext for a case against him can we find? Then be afraid of the sword for yourselves. For the wrath, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword so that you may know there is judgment, Job says. So he's speaking to his friends and he's saying, you know what? You have been pointing your finger at me all along these ten times. You have crushed me. You have tormented me. But just remember that you are a sinner too. <laughs> there will be a judgment one day. Warren Wiersbe says they accused Job of being a sinner, but were they not also sinners? They said that God was judging Job for his sins, but will he not judge them as well? One day they will have to answer to God for the way they have spoken to and about Job, so they had better beware. Have you considered the fact that one day you will stand before God, every one of you, me included, to give an account of our life? There is judgment. We just recited that in the Apostles' Creed this morning, didn't we? From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. And the only hope that we will have on that day of judgment is if we know Jesus. If we can say, I know that my Redeemer lives. If you don't know the Redeemer, what better day to come to know him than on Easter Sunday as we celebrate his death in his resurrection. My dad tells a story of many years ago. He went into the hospital to visit a lady. And as he walked into her room, she was crying. And my dad asked her what's wrong, and she said, There's no hope for me. And he said, What do you mean? He said, The doctor told me this morning, and here's exactly how he put it, he said, you won't need next year's calendar. Bedside manners? Hardly. And she was sitting there in her bed, weeping. There's no hope for me. Well, maybe in terms of her body, that may have been true. But not in terms of her soul. 
for all eternity. My dad was able to open the word to her and share with her that in Jesus there is a living hope, 1 Peter chapter 1. That he came to be her redeemer. That one day she would receive a new body. (laughs) She put her trust in Jesus. Apart from him, there is no hope for us. But in Jesus, there is a living hope. I know that my Redeemer lives. And I know that one day when my skin is destroyed from my flesh with a new body, I will see the one face to face who suffered and died and rose again for me. I trust that's your hope today. And if not, that God would bring you to that place where you recognize that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And that Jesus Christ is that Savior. And you can say, I know that my Redeemer lives. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the hope that you brought to Job. A man that was facing great despair. His hope had been removed just like a tree ripped out by the roots. But that hope was restored as he came to know the Redeemer the mediator, the umpire, the advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. Thank you, Lord, when you died on that cross. It was as if you put one hand in the hand of the Father and one hand in the hand of sinful man. And you brought reconciliation through your blood for us. Thank you, Lord, that to as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right to be called the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. Oh, Lord, may there be many this day throughout our country, throughout the world, who would call upon the name of Jesus, the only mediator between sinful man and a holy God. For we pray in his precious name. Amen.